0: Well, good morning, Elam. Well, after two fun and atypical weeks, we had the uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday, and our friend Cal shared with us, we are settling back into our regular rhythm in the book of James. So if you need sermon notes, if you need a pen, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, one of our wonderful elders will get you what you need. So it might feel like we're backtracking a little bit. Because we are, we went a little out of order for Sanctity of Life Sunday, but we're going to pick up the narrative today in James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. So James began his letter urging Christians to consider it a great joy whenever we experience various trials. And continuing on that theme, today James shares with us a promise. It's going to be our first lesson this morning. That when followers of Jesus respond to trials with joyful endurance, he says they will experience God's reward. And this is what we read, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So let's just start diving in by breaking this all down. Blessed. Fortunate is the person who endures. We learned at the beginning of this journey that endure literally means to remain under, to successfully carry a heavy load for a long time. It speaks of perseverance. It speaks of heroic patience, of long obedience in the same direction as our faith in God lifts and propels us through life's hardships and challenges. And James says, fortunate is the person who endures because once they've stood the test, once the fire of perseverance has served to prove and to temper them, shaping them into the image and likeness of Jesus and training them to depend upon God's grace and power, they will receive the promised reward, which he calls the crown of life. And the commentators put it this way: Even when believers perceive nothing good coming from affliction in this life, they can look forward to a magnificent eternal compensation for their sufferings. So, what is this magnificent eternal compensation? It's the crown of life. And not to get too nerdy, but this—the uh, Greek here can be read in two different ways. Of life is what linguists call a genitive either of description or apposition. If that means nothing to you, you're lucky. I'm kind of bummed that I have all this random Greek knowledge in my brain because I can't remember things like my first kiss anymore. True story. Sorry, B. Uh, So you can either read it as a genitive of description, a living crown with life describing the crown itself, Or you can read it as an equivalent restatement. The crown, which is life. Both are helpful. Living crown clues us in to what sort of crown we should be thinking about. We hear crown and we think a little ringlet of precious metal worn by a a royal on their head as the symbol of their sovereign authority. It's actually the wrong image. James isn't promising us kind of these loads of high-quality consumer goods in the afterlife. Nor is he promising that one day in God's remade world, you will be the king of Albania. That's not what he's saying. He says, if you joyfully endure through the tribulations of life, God will himself reward you with a living crown. And to give you visual learners the image, I'm going to wear a living crown for at least some of the sermon. No guarantee, because I also feel kind of like a woodland elf when I wear this. But the living crown that James is talking about are the laurels of victory. It was a wreath of freshly cut laurel leaves that was placed upon the head of winners of ancient athletic competitions. The original Olympics didn't give you medals of gold, silver, and bronze. They bestowed upon the victors' heads this laurel leaf crown, this living crown. This is what the Apostle Paul references in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-25. He says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Not everyone who compete, Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown. Yet the reward that James promises to those who endure is far more than a bit of greenery, that will mark us at the end of history. What God promises to those who love him is life abundant in the paradise of his presence. The sweet celebration of Jesus' victory in a world made new. And you see, the crown of life is portrayed in different ways, five different ways, across the New Testament letters. Taken together, they give us this kind of rich Portrait of our prize. So the first mention that we're looking at is here in James 1.12, the crown which is life, eternal, unquenchable life. It's also in Corinthians called the imperishable crown, a victory that never fails or fades. In First Thessalonians, Paul calls it the crown of boasting, of exaltation, In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, this joy irrepressible that will be ours when Jesus returns. In 2 Timothy, he calls it the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to all those who have loved his appearing. It's the promise of our soul and the world set right. And then finally, Peter calls it the unfading crown of glory, the awesome reality that Christ will be with us and he will reign with us by his side in a world made new. So unquenchable life, irrepressible rejoicing, a world set right on the, under the glorious and the just and the kind leadership of Jesus. This is endurance's sweet reward. Or as Jesus himself says at the end of the book, in Revelation 2.7, to the one that conquers, trusting the power of Christ at work in them and persevering, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's the same promise. And as we said when we came to the table, these fruits of victory, they're made possible for us because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of God's gift, because of the work of God's Spirit within us. But this, what do they say, magnificent eternal compensation is what ought to motivate our joyful endurance. It's almost as if James is saying, hey, I know it's going to be a hard slog at times, but take heart, it's going to be worth it. You might not see this blessing for a long time. You might not even experience it on this side of the resurrection. But as the Apostle Paul encourages us, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that was going to be revealed to us. So when we as followers of Jesus respond to trials with joyful endurance, we will experience God's reward. The crown of life, the laurels of victory will be ours in the paradise of God's presence in a world that he has made new. So I deeply appreciate James helping us put our eyes on the prize. But there's a second piece to his message this morning that I find equally helpful. And his second message is actually a word of warning. Yes, we can consider it great joy when we face trials because trials are rich with positive potential. They present us with opportunities to grow in wholeness and maturity as we're trained to ever more rely upon God's wisdom, his power, his presence. Yet trials also, uh, you might say, possess negative potential as well. As one commentator puts it, and this is in your sermon notes, When Christians allow such trials to turn into seductions to sin, they have only themselves to blame. So I'm going to let James unpack that statement in verse 13. He says this, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You see, when things get hard, it is our nature to look elsewhere to assign blame. Does anyone else do that? Apparently, there was a season in my life where my preferred scapegoat for my mistakes was my wife, Brianna. I know this because my dear Christian brother, Russell, uh, used to mock me mercilessly for it. Uh, This is what iron sharpening iron looks like sometimes. It looks like friends helping us see kind of the farce and the foolishness of our sin. Apparently, and I didn't realize this, apparently it was my habit whenever I had an accident, whenever I dropped something, which happens all the time, I am very drop prone. Whenever I stubbed my toe, I would cry out my wife's name. Brianna! I thought it was me calling for help. Russell saw it for what it was. I was taking my wife's name in vain. I was uttering her name as if it was a curse and some sort of exasperated aspersion of blame. And all I can say is I love my long-suffering, patient wife and that she's stuck with me. Well, I discovered this habit of mine because Russell started to adopt it just to troll me. So we would commute the two and a half hours uh, to seminary classes together, and every time he accidentally ran a red light, because in San Francisco the lights are very short, he would shout out, Brianna! (laughs) (laughs) And he did that enough times that I noticed how ridiculous I was being, and I learned to take responsibility for my own mistakes, and it was his gentle shaming... That spurs me to repentance. So, what about you? When things get rocky, who do you blame? Your, your spouse? Yeah, you can try, Brianna. Poor thing. <laughs> your spouse, your kids, your parents, your boss, the governor. Ultimately, we end up blaming God. We blame Him because we doubt God's kindness. Man, God must really have it out for me. Or we uh, doubt God's goodness. He must want me to fail. Otherwise, why would he purposefully be putting obstacles in my path to make me stumble? Why is there an ice cream shop next to the Weight Watchers? (laughs) Which was true in my hometown. It always amused me. Also, why did he give my coworker such a grating voice and an obnoxious voice? face God must not that's not any of my coworkers just to put that out but G, James rebukes that sentiment he says that's a lie from the pit of hell God only and always seeks our good he wants us to grow and mature not to fail and fall He cannot tempt us with evil because God is immune to evil's charms. He's utterly pure, utterly holy, utterly righteous, and he sees evil for what it is. He can't be tempted by it, and he won't tempt you to it. Instead, James says in verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Every trial contains its own temptation. That's our fill-in. A self-serving detour that appears alluring and feels right, but ultimately won't lead us to relief or to flourishing. It'll lead us to destruction. We've already learned in James that perseverance in the face of trial will require dependence on God's wisdom. It will require a confidence in God's character. It will require courage to trust God's will, his way. And indeed, it will require a high tolerance for pain. But our flesh says something different. Like Spider-Man in the most recent Spider-Man movie, our flesh says, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. It's funny, when times get tough, we'll doubt God's goodness, his kindness, his power, but we never tend to doubt our own hearts. We never tend to doubt our own inner compass. And I think James here wants to shake our faith in our own inner compass so that we can place our faith In Jesus. Time after time, I hear this. I hear what God's word says, but I I can't. This isn't an ordinary situation. It doesn't feel right. Sometimes we dress it up in spiritual language. I, I have peace with this path. This is God's will for me. Surely he wouldn't wish for me to struggle and suffer like this. Yet here we're not channeling the Holy Spirit. We're channeling something else. Actually, I think we're channeling 98 Degrees and Stevie Wonder circa 1998. Does anyone remember this song? I used to hate this song because of its message, not just because of the boy band. True to your heart, you must be true to your heart. That's when the heavens will part and babies shower you with my love. Open your eyes. Your heart can tell you no lies. You must be true to your heart and you know it's going to lead you straight to me. Then Stevie Wonder harmonica. It's great. It's not actually great. I can't stand it. Yes, yes. Be true to your heart. It will lead you into God's best, we say. Who needs perseverance? heroic patience, long obedience in the same direction. No, just trust your inner compass and do your own thing. James, Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah, they all want to push back on that. Jeremiah says as a counterpoint, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Jesus agrees with him. In the Gospel of Mark, he says this, from, from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. It is not God who tempts us, but the desires that reside within our hearts. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Psalm 37 shows us how things were supposed to work. David writes this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. You see, humans are hardwired with beautiful, God-given desires. Desires for nourishment and refreshment, for rest and meaningful labor, for knowing and being known, for, for safety and adventure, for community and quiet for intimacy, for ecstasy, for for immortality, for transcendence. These implanted longings are designed to draw us to our loving creator and the purposes he intends for us. But things have gotten out of whack. Our compass has lost true north, and Romans 1 explains how. Paul writes this, For though humanity knew God... They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. God's invisible attributes, his, his eternal power, his divine nature have been on display since the dawn of creation. But like rebellious kids, we've refused to acknowledge God's authority or his goodness. We've not given him the thanks that he's due. We've wanted to forge our own path, and thus we've turned our God-given desires away from their original intended object to lesser substitutes. And it's left us confused and disordered. Paul goes on, Claiming to be wise, humanity became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to uncleanness. The CSB translates that here as sexual immorality or impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to what Paul calls disgraceful passions. There's a lot there, but basically our refusal to recognize God as the source to acknowledge his wise leadership has left our hearts senseless and our desires disordered. And I think James really wants us to know that when times get tough, you need to know that Jesus and his wisdom is the sure thing, not your own internal desires. Our desires are disordered, our desires are deceitful, and our desires will lead us on destructive detours that will cause our harm. And he especially wants us to beware of that when we're in the thick of difficulty. Because sometimes when we're in the thick of difficulty, it's right where God wants us. It's not because God wants to see us suffer, but because it's maybe in this self-giving service, in this faithful obedience, in this costly and repeated demonstration of Christ-like love that God is calling you to, that might be exactly what he will use to mature your character, to break your selfishness, or to lead you into the victorious life that he makes available for us. But our flesh will search out the quickest and the easiest off-ramp out of our trial. Our senseless hearts will follow the siren song of our disordered desires and it will right out of God's will, right out of the place where God can shape us and form us and mold us into the power and the love and the character of Jesus. And I think here James is kind of wanting us to see how sin takes root in our lives. He says it begins with our disordered desires, and he doesn't hold us culpable for those desires. But he says everyone's desires, good or bad, we have to bring those to Jesus and say, hey, what do you say about this? I think about this in marriage, and I don't like using marriage metaphors too much because I don't want to leave out the, uh, the single folk. But sometimes God calls you to plow a... Uh, I can't think of farming metaphors, I'm sorry. I'm a city boy. <laughs> you have to walk a tough road. Sometimes you are coming alongside someone in the brokenness. Sometimes you are loving in costly ways. Sometimes it is just hard to be part of another broken person's journey as they struggle and suffer and look to Jesus. And there are times where we want to go, you know what? No, I want out. Or I want this inner desire for intimacy and connection. And God says, yes, that is good, but don't put that onto the wrong object, right? Intimacy and connection actually comes as we walk the path God calls us to. Delight yourself in the Lord, trust in his ways. He will give you the desires of your heart. But if you want to take that off-ramp to something lesser, It will mean your destruction. And he says, beware of that. Yes, intimacy and connection are something that is good, and I gave you. But we have a disordered desire, and sometimes we shift that desire for intimacy and connection to to another person that's not our spouse, or we shift that desire for intimacy and connection to a two-dimensional image on our phone screen, and he says, no, no. That only will lead to destruction. And he says, What happens? We have these disordered desires, and if we don't ask the Lord for wisdom and submit them to his leadership, it says that disordered desire will conceive sin. We will be baited and hooked. By sin, that's the language there in the Greek. And that sin will be conceived, and as it matures, it will breed destruction. And I think he wants us to know that in times of trial, God will show us his power, but there's also an enemy, and there's a darkness in our heart that will want us to not experience God's goodness and grace and power. And he says, beware. Do not trust your inner compass. Trust God's wisdom. A disordered desire that succumbs to temptation, it conceives into sin and it matures into death. And he says, no, no, no. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives ungrudgingly and generously, and it will be given to him. God will give you what you need, To persevere, He will give you what you need to actually experience the desires of your heart in the way that God has given it. But as you go into a season of trial, be aware both that there's positive potential, that God might want to grow you in this, and be aware that there's negative potential. There is a temptation that you are going to be drawn to that will derail your faithfulness and perseverance. And he says, Ask God for wisdom. Resist temptation. Trust him. It's all of these verses that we've been meditating on. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, and he will make your paths straight. Ask for wisdom, and he will give it generously and ungrudgingly. And I think the heart of this passage is James both wants us to see the reward for endurance and he also wants us to be vigilant. To stay in this spot where we have to trust and depend on the Lord and not be deceived by our own inner compass because that is deceitful. Only Jesus and God's wisdom is sure. So I'm going to stop us there, but I want to end us with a prayer that has been meaningful to me. Uh, Teresa of Avila was a 16th century Spanish believer. She was what you call a contemplative. And she had this prayer that for me, as I've sat with this text this week, I feel like perfectly sums up what the Lord Is calling us to remember. So as the worship team comes up, I'm going to invite you to pray this with me. And in fact, let's do it this way. I'm going to do a line and then you repeat it after me. We're going to do a little call and response prayer. So I'll say it and then repeat. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. That is our prayer, God. With humility we come to you. We seek to persevere because we know that it is in the journey that you shape us in your image. It is your victory, but we get to experience your victory worked out through us. So keep us on the path. Keep us in the struggle. And may we not be derailed by our own deceptive desires. As Teresa taught us to pray, God, whoever has God lacks nothing. You alone suffice. Thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.